0: Here's Elise Glink she's the owner of Think Glink Media and Best Money Moves Thinklink.com is her website Elise thanks for joining us again how are you
1: I'm I'm doing fine John how are you
0: Pretty good I think a lot of our guests have been in good moods the last 10 12 15 days because last few weeks we've just seen the market get to and sometimes surpass All-time highs, huh?
1: Uh, Oh, it's crazy. Um, I'm looking at it now. We're getting very close to NASDAQ 15,000 again, and we've only exceeded where we are right now uh, briefly. So we're getting near the total, the market high. Dow Jones, we hit a high last week. Uh, S&P 500. I mean, the numbers just look terrific, and a lot of people are going to be very happy if they take a look at their IRA and 401ks uh, at the end of this year.
0: So then, why did the Feds, Austin Goolsbee, say he's confused by the rally?
1: You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I think the Fed didn't realize how much pent-up nervousness has been in the market. Um, even though it's been building and building, as the better news is coming down, that inflation is coming down and everything is looking better. But once the Fed said they have targeted three reductions next year, and by the way, there are some analysts who are out there saying the Fed is actually going to do five. Four. Oh, really, five? Five, I saw this morning. Uh, I think that they, the Fed just wasn't prepared for what that unleashed, this optimism for moving into 2024 and actually having interest rates come down.
0: The criticism of them the last two years has been they did too little too late. I wonder if the worry is now that they'll do too much too fast.
1: (laughs) Well, it's always something, right? Nobody's ever really happy with what the Federal Reserve is doing. Um, but, I have to say that you know what there 's a lot of good stuff that waterfalls off reducing interest rates, so for example, mortgage interest rates, which have been sky high have already fallen below seven percent they 're hovering just about seven percent. But a couple of weeks ago, you and I were talking about how they were over eight percent for a 30 year fixed rate loan. If interest rates come down, that means the record credit card debt that people are are using right now and are holding, that interest on those accounts is going to come down. It's going to be less onerous. And so I think there's a lot of optimism about how even minor reductions of a quarter point in the interest rate, the federal funds rate, I should say, could be seen very positively and generate some good results for Americans
0: yeah I'm at a loss to explain exactly why the administration or whoever's responsible for the economy and all these metrics isn't getting more credit or why Americans don't seem to be happier about the economy and I it, it, it I understand that it's all about inflation whatever those other numbers are what am I paying for food and things at the store is really the only number that impacts you on a daily basis but But inflation is not as high as wages are right now. Those are up. And all of the other numbers which would portend good for individuals are there. You know, lower interest rates. um, Unemployment is around 3%. Mortgage rates have come down. There aren't many bad numbers in the mix right now.
1: No, there aren't. And it is surprising that people are so... I don't know. They're they're really negative now at the end of the year. There is another number that I ran across this morning as I was doing some research for our conversation today, John. That's interesting. So you and I have talked about um, buy now, pay later uh, things like after pay or a firm. You see them now as you're checking out online. You have lots of options. You can pay in equal installments interest rate free. So even as we have tapped out uh, our credit cards and we're carrying the highest levels of credit card debt that we have since uh, 2019, and maybe even now a bit beyond that, People are also a huge percentage, like around 35 to 40 percent of Americans have now tried one of these buy now, pay later uh, things. And they're using it not just for extremely expensive things that they want to pay off over six months, which they can do interest free as long as they make those payments on time, but they also are doing gas and food and pharmaceuticals. Um, And sort of everyday expenses, they're putting it on there and they're trying to spread out those payments. And I wonder if people between that and student loan debt restarting, uh, people aren't feeling extremely stressed. And that may explain again why the pessimism versus the optimism.
0: Well, I'll do that, too. So you got credit card debt out there. You've got student loan repayments. You've got uh, retirement savings, which are never enough. We are a nation in the Western world. Um, the leader in not saving enough. So those are numbers that aren't good. Uh, If you wanted to get macro about it, you could even talk about the federal debt. So those are numbers that we need to pay attention to for sure. By the way, Elise, um, the cost of housing is as high now for folks as what, ever? Is that what you're telling me?
1: Yeah. Believe it or not, according to the National Housing Conference's latest numbers, housing affordability is actually the worst in our lifetime. And you and I are not 30 anymore, John. I'm giving, I'm telling, letting everybody know. Um, But, uh, you know, this is uh, really problematic with, again, we talk about interest rates, how high interest rates got for mortgages, but also the price of homes, which has really jumped up over the last four years. And one of the things that's also driving this. Is um you know when they talk about housing affordability it isn't just home ownership they're also talking about rental and so uh, rent uh, has really jumped up in most parts of the country, including Chicago and the state of Illinois it has also gone up. but in places like Phoenix, um, you know they 're just seeing huge increases in rent and housing prices. And so many more people are now homeless because they just simply can't even afford to find anywhere to rent.
0: Are these prices on homes going up because of the increased price in the houses? Or is it because interest rates mean that your mortgage payments are higher? Uh,
1: So that and let's start with the main problem, which is that we are simply four to five million homes short in this country.
0: So the home prices are higher
1: so the home prices are actually higher because demand is up and you know every year, let's just start with every year more than a million new families or new households are created in this country just a million so at the very least we need to have not only a million extra new homes but we also have to be able to replace the homes that can't be lived in anymore they get torn down because you know, they're just not livable. You know, housing goes bad. (laughs) And so sometimes you just have to replace it. And so what ends up happening is we really need between about a million and a quarter to a million and a half new homes that come on the market every single year for either rent or to own. And we haven't had that number or anything close to that number in 15 years. And Mm. so this huge gap between how many homes we need and how many homes we actually have has sprung up. And so there's just a huge amount of demand and little supply. And so supply and demand prices went up. And then to compound that, we saw interest rates go up. So if you're a landlord, you're paying more for your mortgage. So you turn around and charge more in rent or just because you see that you can. If you're a, a seller, you're not actually selling because you've got the vast majority of people have mortgages under 4 or 5%, and now it's like 7 or 8%, so you don't want to go buy a more expensive home and then pay more to finance it. You're not moving, and so people have, who are looking to buy a home to move into their own home uh, are finding that interest rates are higher, home prices are even higher than that, and it's just really caused a big problem.
0: You sent a note to producer Pete. I, I, by the way, suppose that the supply chain issues in the first of the pandemic just set everything back a year or up $50,000 as well. Remember the cost of lumber and Mm -hmm. you couldn't, if you could get it. Um, But your note to Pete included this in 2023, a registered nurse could afford to buy a home in 90 of 360 markets in the USA. According to the NHC Paycheck to Paycheck database, in 201 markets, 52% of metro areas, buying a home with an income below $100,000 is a non-starter. And it's tougher for middle school teachers or teachers in general. The income needed to buy a typically priced home nearly doubled from $73,700 in September of 2021. So figure two years ago, $73,700, the amount of money needed to typically buy a home, went from seventy-three seven to, this fall, $120,000.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you definitely need two and even two-plus incomes to buy a home. Not to say that it isn't out there and you can't do it. It is. Um, But there are a lot of places around the country where just what you're earning, even two incomes, just simply is not enough to buy anything that's, uh, you know, would be nice that you would want to live in.
0: Yeah. Uh, Last thing, then, some deadlines here um, for those of us that are shopping still.
1: Well, I'm sure you've gotten all your shopping done, John, right?
0: (laughs) Uh, Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, So tomorrow is the last day for Priority Mail Service. Uh, December 23rd is the last day for Priority Mail Express Service. Uh, We have on the 20th, so day after tomorrow, last day for UPS three-day select service. Uh, The 21st is the last day for the second day air service for UPS. And the December 22nd, uh, last day for UPS, next day air. And finally, if you are really waiting until the end, December 23rd is the last day for Priority Mail Express service. So if you have not yet got your packages in the mail or in UPS, you might want to get moving.
0: We were um, online yesterday clicking around a website to make our Christmas card. And the Christmas card, when I started to think of how long it's going to take me to figure out the website, get the card shipped to me, and then get them sent out, we changed it to a Happy New Year's card. Um, (laughs) And if I wait any longer, it'll be Happy (laughs) Valentine's Day with President's Day just around the corner. But um, uh, so those deadlines are fast approaching, aren't they?
1: They certainly are. And we are, you know, I'm doing the same thing that you are. I'm looking at my new year's card and thinking well i can always email it to everybody yeah or maybe just post it on facebook
0: <laughs> i have gotten a couple of really nice email holiday messages from family friends or corporations you know i mean kind of a mix and that's it's nice uh i don't know what the jury thinks about just sending out an email blast to everybody right like that seems to be less personal but uh, You know, Brenda and I are making this. Everybody's going to get the same card that we send out. We'll handwrite a note on it, but um, I'm not sure if maybe I need to change with the times. It's okay to just send out an email to everybody on your list.
1: Well, I know I know that you and I both like getting those cards and opening up our letters, and I'm sure we're not the only ones like it. So I'm going to make and I'm going to endeavor to get my New Year's card out not too far into the new year.
0: One last thing. I have 60 mm-hmm. seconds left. We're talking to Elise Glink. So then, um, as always, we ask our guests about a soft landing. Um, is ha, Has that been achieved, or when are we going to know?
1: I'll tell you. I think we're getting very close to knowing. I mean, we thought, most economists thought there was going to be a huge recession this year. And then they said, well, maybe a late recession. And now the economists are all saying, we may actually be out of the clear. Growth is slowing, but not that much. They think we might get a quarter of uh, negative growth in the beginning of the year. But the economy is still pretty strong, John. And so I think as we move into 2024, let's see if inflation is going to stick right around 2 to 3%, which mm-hmm. would make the Fed happy. And if the market keeps growing, we keep making jobs, I think we'll safely say that we've achieved that soft landing, the elusive sloth- soft and. Oh, my God, I can't even say it. The elusive, elusive sloth landing. <laughs>
0: it's good to hear you, Elise. Happy holidays. Thank you, John. You too. Thinklink.com is her website. Let's keep rolling now with Jim Dalkey. He regularly joins us and does again. Happy holidays, Jim. Hey, John. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we always appreciate your coming on. You can always find Jim's stuff. Is the national editor at American Inno by clicking on chicagoinno.com. What is Nanograph? Yeah,
2: Nanograph, really interesting battery tech startup here in Chicago. They've been plugging along for several years now, um, working on uh, their own proprietary silicon anode material, which is uh, battery tech speak for just I- I- an important piece of the battery process. And um, they've uh, uh, got a new $8 million contract from the U.S. Army just the other week. Um, this comes on the heels of opening a new 17,000-square manufacturing facility here in the West Loop, where It's making its battery tech. Uh, This is definitely a startup to watch in Chicago. They raised a $64 million funding round earlier uh, in 2023 and uh, now are getting some more money from really one of their best customers, the U.S. Army. So the U.S. Army uses Nanograph's technology um, in a range of different ways, but one for the soldiers on the ground. So soldiers can uh, carry up to, you know, about 25 pounds worth of batteries on their person out in the field. And Nanograph says that its battery material is actually lighter and can reduce that weight load by about 15%. So uh, the Army has been a regular funder this the Chicago startup, and now uh, the company is getting some even additional funding from the Army here as it looks to grow into its new manufacturing space and, and get its uh, battery tech into more companies. Um, beyond the Army, it's also looking at uh, electric vehicles. So they're hoping to get their battery tech uh, into a, a great number of new electric vehicles that are going to come on the market. So more to come there, but certainly uh, they've got some cash in the bank here to, to grow their business and get their battery tech in the hands of more customers.
0: You started to answer my next question. So it won't just be military applications. Maybe Maybe for automobiles, uh, and boy, you wonder if they'll put it in phones or other flashlights or other gadgets out there. Uh, is it applicable? Is it translatable?
2: Yeah, it is. And so you know, they hope that they're going to be able to get into into a wide variety of industries. And um, you know, I think starting with you know the army is a great source too, right? Because you know the funding that comes there is not. Um, you know, venture capital funding this is grants, right? So it's like, you know, you're not giving up any equity necessarily for, for money there. So non-dilutive funding is certainly a win for, for any startup. And, uh, you know, developing a relationship with the U.S. Army is pretty fruitful for Nanograft. And so, yeah, this is definitely a, a startup that um, over the, the year has, has, has proven to bring in cash where a lot of startups have struggled to raise Um, So, uh, you know, it's it's certainly kind of bucked the trend we've seen in 2023 of of startups kind of, you know, having a difficult time bringing in funding and growing. And this is a startup that, hey, has not only brought in venture capital funding, but also grant funding um, and opened a brand new space uh, to grow their, their battery tech right here in Chicago.
0: Maybe it was a foregone conclusion that batteries would become as efficient and powerful as they are. But I seem to recall that when the EV market started to come to fore, we were worried that The cars would be impossibly heavy or expensive, or the range would be too short, that the battery power just wasn't there. Now, depending on what you're driving, you can go 400 miles on a charge in some cars, right?
2: That's right, and you know we should certainly expect that to only get better, right? So I mean, I think this, there's there's a lot of you know smart folks kind of working on this problem exactly because it's a big market, um, and I think you're seeing pretty much every you know car manufacturer you know release a, an electric vehicle in one way or another, and it, it seems like it's only going to continue growing. And, and the, the key piece of that is the battery tech. Is it is it safe? Is it going to last long enough? I mean, is it going to hold up? Uh, what happens when you you, know, you you go to the resale market for these, like how long um, do the batteries last? And I think those are all important questions that this industry is going to continue to have to answer. And it's going to require, um, you know, deep technology like the stuff that Nanograph is working on.
0: Mm. Let's uh, talk about M-Hub, which sets a grand opening for its $50 million manufacturing incubator. I'm reading from you guys. What's the latest on that?
2: Yeah, M-Hub, uh, this is in a Chicago incubator of sorts kind of for hard tech and physical product startups so uh, the news here is that they moved into a new 80,000 square foot building uh, located on uh, 1623 West Fulton Street on the near west side this is a, a move for them um, they moved from an old Motorola building on the west side as well and so this is a building that's going to be about 50% bigger for Hub. so uh, really this uh, space is dedicated to folks who are building Hard physical products. Um, you know, it's very—it's uh, not exactly um, expensive to launch a software business. You know, you need to pay the engineers, but you know, pretty much you can get a software business off the ground uh, relatively inexpensively. For a hardware company, it, that is not the case. You need access to machines. You need big space to build your prototypes, and that's exactly what M Hub offers to create really a a, a co-working space for everybody to be able to use 3D printers and CNC milling machines and all the kind of big, heavy, expensive machinery that you need to build your prototypes and get your hardware startup off the ground. And so M-Hub launched in Chicago in 2017 has really been a vital resource for kind of any business in town that's building a hardware product. Um, You know, they say that, you know, they're companies since 2017 have gone on to re- do about a billion dollars in revenue and raise uh, an additional 1.5 billion dollars of venture capital so they've been a big resource for companies that are building hardware startups here in the city and one example of that is a company called qb um hey, they launched several years ago they built an under desk elliptical trainer basically while you're sitting at your uh-huh. uh, desk at the office working on your keyboard you could be pedaling this little machine underneath and burn a couple calories while you're sitting at work. And they got acquired actually for $100 million. It was really kind of an example of a big big success story for a hardware startup in Chicago. and They had a presence at M-Hub and used the facility to build their product as well. And so that's just kind of one example of, hey, hey, you know, a startup in, in, in Chicago that's building hardware kind of needs to plug into M- M-Hub's resources. And now they've got a bigger facility to help those startups um, continue to build their products.
0: I would have guessed that that would have gone the way of the bread maker, you know, a flash in the pan, but those ellipticals, while you're at work, work, huh? That was a going concern.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, it, the the headlines, you know, four, five, six years ago, were were what? You know, sitting is the new smoking. Everybody was so worried that you're sitting at your <laughs> yeah. desk and you're just, yeah. you know, you're really not getting the exercise you needed. And the QB was able to give you just that slight little movement, right, to keep your keep your heart pumping and uh, give you a kind of cut a couple calories throughout the
0: workday. Uh, we talked about Baby Gammy on this show earlier last week. Uh, but just give me a little heads up on this. why Why is this interesting to you?
2: Yeah, these guys raised $100 in a hundred million dollars in a competition called Tech Rise here in Chicago uh, you know what's so interesting about the tech rise competitions. This is really a, an effort born um, in April of twenty twenty one, really kind of in the wake of, you know, George floyd and, you know the uprising and so much of what was happening around the country in terms of you know, discrimination against people of color. And what Techrise set to do was that, hey, we want to get funding into more founders of color in Chicago. And so, you know, they launched this competition to directly fund Black and Brown founders in Chicago. And since they launched in 2021, they deployed about two point three million dollars into the hands of, of startups here in Chicago led by black or brown founders. And those startups have actually gone on to raise an additional ninety three million dollars in funding, which is really remarkable when you think that tech rise is in, in some cases the very first check that a lot of these startups are getting. And so they becoming a winner of the the competition gets hundred thousand dollars. They've created a collapsible baby bottle. It's really neat. It's, it's it's basically kind of a rubber baby bottle that's made for travel. So if you're traveling, you've got all your baby gear, and I know this very well as a as a father of a three year old. You've got all the baby gear stuff, and baby Gami's baby bottle basically folds in itself and makes it super easy and compactable and and uh, safe to travel with. I just
0: I describe my son and daughter-in-law. When they come to our house with their three-year-old, they look like the crew loading up the Apollo spacecraft where they walk down the sidewalk like the gangway and they've got all of this gear, none of it comprehensible to me. All of this fancy space gear and it's the bed and it's the stroller and it's the this and the that and I guess that's a little bit of your world too, huh?
2: Oh yeah, that's that's very much so. So hey, any any way that you can save a little bit extra space, a little right. extra room, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, no kidding. Goes a long way. Happy holidays, Jim Dalkey, national editor at American Inno. Thanks for your insight today. Thanks, John. Uh, the business news continues now on the Win Trust Business Lunch with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Win Trust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business
3: news of the day. Chicago-based shout-out app Cameo has been raking in the cash from disgraced former Congressman George Santos. The Republican lawmaker was booted from the House after being indicted on 23 counts of wire fraud, identity theft, and campaign finance charges. Not long after, he bragged about making $80,000 a day doing Cameo videos company gets a 25% cut, which means Cameo's been getting about $20,000 per day thanks to Santos. Startup has been forced to lay off staff, so the influx of cash is helping. A hotel in Chicago's Streeterville neighborhood is converting to mostly apartments. Cranes reports a Florida private equity firm will convert the 170-room Gale Chicago Hotel into 140 apartments, 56 hotel units, and commercial space. The hotel is located at 201 East Delaware Place. According to plans, the redevelopment will preserve character-defining features of the building. The city will have to approve the plans. I'm Steve Gritanich, and that's your Wintrust Business
4: Minute.
0: Here's the business of food with Steve Alexander.
4: Thank you, and it's the giving season again. And if you're looking for the dollars that you donate to make a big bang, consider this return on investment.
5: If you give us a dollar, we can turn that into $8 worth of groceries that we'll get out to a family in need this year. A $100 donation can feed a family for a month.
4: We'll find out who she is after I thank the Chevy Silverado and Chevy DrivesChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, Lou Manfredini is going to introduce our Business of Food guest today. Joining me on the phone line is Julie Yurko, who is the president and CEO of the Northern Illinois Food Bank. And Julie has a wish.
5: I wish there was no food insecurity, but I also know that Unexpected life happens, that you get a medical diagnosis, you lose a job, a pandemic hits, inflation hits.
4: Julie was on with Lou Saturday and I wanted to help spread the word about the great work the Northern Illinois Food Bank and all the food banks around Chicago are doing and, unfortunately, how much demand there is.
5: Through our food pantries and feeding sites, we are serving on average 540,000 neighbors facing food insecurity every month. And last year, we provided over 82 million meals.
4: And donations are down.
5: Fewer folks are giving to us. Inflation hits everyone. It's tough out there right now. And so for us to get the word out that should people be looking to make investments into worthy causes, we sure hope they'll think about the food bank.
4: And should you be interested in donating to the food bank, there's a website. Lou? That website is SolveHungerToday.org.
5: Yes, and we also have a volunteer button. We also have a Get Help button. And if someone is looking for help and they want to talk to someone, we have a hotline of very friendly food bankers. It's 844-600-SNAP, which is 7627.
4: There is no shame in asking for help.
5: The reason we're here is to make sure that everybody has what they need. And if this is your time where you need a little help, that's great. You can also give a little help and volunteer, but but no shame, right? That's what neighbors do. We all help one another.
4: Julie Yurko of the Northern Illinois Food Bank on with Lou Manfredini on Saturday morning, and uh, Lou, go ahead and hit us with that website again. Solve hunger today. Thank you, Lou. From the farm to your belly, today's National Roast Suckling Pig Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN.
0: Trevor Wegener is on a phone line, the chief economist and director of the Research Center for the Computer and Communications Industry Association. Hey, Trevor, it's John. You're on WGN. How are you? Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You have uh, joined us before, as I recall, right? Uh, yes, indeed. So tell us, though, uh, remind our listeners anyway, what this association is all about.
6: Certainly. So CCIA is a, uh, an international trade association representing companies in the uh, communications and information industries, uh, including many of the uh, common digital tools and services that uh, many consumers use every day.
0: What's an example of that?
6: Oh, certainly. So we have, uh, for example, Amazon, Google, uh, Apple. Uh, we also have a number of other members who are more uh, business to business, like Shopify, uh, who is covered in uh, uh, our survey that I am, um, our study that I'm very excited to talk about.
0: What was the Shopify survey all about?
6: Certainly. So it's not just about them, it's about the broader retail industry. Uh, so we have analyzed a large amount of census data. Uh, in order to ascertain uh, sort of what the recent developments have been in the retail industry, because many of our members are active in the retail industry. Uh, and we found a number of very surprising findings based on U.S. Census data. Uh, so, for example, in the most recent census data, it shows that retail startups are 18% more likely to survive at least five years today than they were in the early 1990s before e-commerce existed. Moreover, retail startups have a higher survival rate now than they have at any point in the past three decades, and retail productivity has grown at twice the rate of the broader economy since 2009. Hmm. Perhaps most excitingly for the smaller retailers, beginning in the 2010s, they resumed positive growth for the first time since the 1980s, when the uh, so-called big-box effect saw a lot of smaller retailers replaced by larger retailers. Uh, And we even saw medium-sized retailers accelerate their growth sharply. Well, quite surprisingly, given common media narratives, uh, large incumbent retailers' growth actually slowed significantly uh, in the 2010s. So the census data suggests that common perceptions about retail may be a little bit off.
0: Well, when you say retailers, and you're talking about maybe most happily the smaller and medium-sized ones, Um, Are those online retailers, brick-and-mortar retailers, or some combination?
6: So it covers uh, all firms in the sort of broader retail sector of the economy. But we did drill down into just stores that have brick-and-mortar locations. Uh, And we found that even there, there was significant growth. Uh, in both brick and mortar sales, and importantly, in their online sales, yeah. uh, and that's because the large majority of retailers that are Brit- yeah, you know, or consider themselves predominantly brick and mortar retailers do also have e-commerce sales as well.
0: I uh, well, I guess that's not surprising. You most certainly would have to, you know, I, because I, I uh, would have been persuaded that online commerce would have been the death of the mom and pop brick and mortar retail store. Um, those people that are out there are surviving not just from walk-ins, but also clicks, it sounds like. I wonder what the best uh, path would be to chart. Should I just be an online store or should I you know, put a shingle out front on Main Street?
6: So we were actually very curious about that as well. So after analyzing the census data, we actually interviewed a large number of founders and top executives at small and medium-sized retailers to find out uh, exactly how they had been doing over the past decade, what challenges they had been facing, and how they were overcoming them. And some very consistent narratives emerged. Uh, in particular, a lot of these smaller and medium-sized retailers faced very consistent challenges, uh, or rather a wide range of challenges that for individual retailers were often consistent And they were able to use a large number of providers of a variety of tools, including both digital tools and and brick-and-mortar tools, uh, in order to resolve these challenges, which led to our conclusion the answer is generally both. Uh, For some retailers, it may be just one or the other, but for the vast majority, sort of an omni-channel approach going for both brick-and-mortar and and e-commerce seems to work best. Uh, We had a couple of case studies that really illustrated
0: that quite well. Give me um. I have about a minute left. Give me one example.
6: Certainly. So we spoke with the founder of apparel uh, retailer Bombas, which experienced a huge surge in demand following its deal with investor Damon John on the show Shark Tank. Uh, that surge in demand, which is normally a good thing for a retailer, overwhelmed Bombas's existing online store. Uh, in order to try to get their website up again quickly, at a much higher rate of demand with the additional publicity. They started using e-commerce enabling website tools from a variety of vendors, uh, including Shopify, in order to scale quickly in response to the strong consumer demand. Uh, They found that the prices were generally right and the ease of implementation was strong and it helped them be able to respond to and meet that strong demand from Shark Tank. Uh, We've also found on the brick and mortar side very quickly when we interviewed Clean Cult's founder, which is a household cleaning product retailer with an eco uh, brand, Uh, that they were able to use Walmart Marketplace, uh, the online marketplace from Walmart, uh, in order to test out products and find the best product fit, uh, which has really helped them to uh, identify which products work well and which products to invest in. Uh, So even though the challenges there were very different and the tools were very different, uh, facilitators have been the key driver here, that small and medium-sized retailers just 15 years ago, really wouldn't have had many uh, third-party facilitators right, to use right. to solve these
0: problems.
6: 18% more likely. Yeah, right?
0: the, the number that I think is just interesting, and maybe it's the headline here, right? The data shows that these small businesses are 18% more likely to survive at least five years today than they were in the early 1990s before e-commerce and It's a little bit of the brick and a little bit of the online presence that is making the difference. Uh, Trevor, uh, do join us again. Absolutely. Yeah. Wegener is the chief economist and director of the Research Center for the Computer and Communications Industry Association. Okay, Trevor, well done. Thanks for your help. Thank you.